I read, I read an article that was in uh, USA Today. I don't get the magazine, but I see it online. Uh, different articles come up in my uh, email uh, program. And, and uh, <clears throat> this is, I found this very interesting. It said, more U.S. Christians mix in Eastern New Age beliefs. This gal says this, going to church this Sunday, look around. says, the chances are that one in five of the people there finds, quote-unquote, spiritual energy in mountains or trees. And one in six believes in the evil eye that certain people can cast curses with a look. Beliefs your Christian pastor doesn't preach, hopefully. Said in a Catholic church... Chances are that one in five members believes in reincarnation in a way never taught in catechism class, that you'll be reborn in this world again and again. Elements of Eastern faiths and New Age thinking have been widely adopted by 65% of U.S. adults, including many who call themselves Protestants and Catholics, according to a study by the Pew Forum. That's crazy. Don't look around and say, well, which one of you guys believe in the evil eye and all that stuff? Hopefully that's a smaller percentage here. But kind of, uh, you know, in, in line with what I was talking about last week, the importance of being grounded on the word of God, not on, you know, what the prevailing winds of weirdness are. Uh, they have a word for this. It's called syncretism. And that, what that means is mixing different things, you know putting different things together to make up, you know, what, your own faith, whatever it is. The president of the Baptist uh, seminary, he says this, he sees a rampant confusion about the faith revealed in these findings. He says, There's a, he says this is a failure in the pulpit as much as of the pew to be clear about what is and is not compatible with Christianity and belief in salvation only through Christ. So the, the fault is not just people sitting there. The fault is also here being taught correctly, being uh, you know, taught about what the Scripture does and does not teach. Well, I can tell you right now, it does not teach reincarnation. It does not teach evil eye cursing. It does not teach you know, finding power in... Mountains or trees, spiritual energy. But these kinds of things are, are, are very prevalent in our society today. And it used to be, you know, somebody that was like that, you'd think they're really weird. Now they're like normal. They're just normal. Listen to this. The, at the end of the article, it says, Despite Americans' overwhelming allegiance to someone they call God, 92% say they believe in God. But in this... Uh, Religious Landscape Survey, 70% said many religions can lead to eternal life. And 68% said there's more than one true way to interpret the teachings of my religion. So you got 92% say, yeah, we believe in God, but that, what does that mean? It means whatever you want it to mean, this whole relativism uh, in our society too. In short... We believe our own experiences are authentic and no authority can say otherwise. That's a very Eastern notion, said Jim Todd Hunter, Bethesda, Maryland. Retired after three decades leading a United Church of Christ congregations, he has studied in a Hindu ashram in India. 
and practices Zen meditation and Christian contemplative prayer. Just mix it all up. Take it all in. He says, either way, however you meet God is wonderful. It's all wonderful. Scary. That scares me. That scares me. And in in, in, it challenges me more than anything that we need to be grounded and fixed on the word of God. The, treat, the, the true teaching. And that's what we talked about last week. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 8 and look at the faith of the centurion. Our last section in Matthew, we talked about the touch of the king, how Jesus touched the untouchable. He came down from the mountainside. He'd, he'd given the Sermon on the Mount. He came down from the mountainside. And what did he find when he came down from the mountain? This glorious time of teaching up there, he comes down and he finds pain. He finds suffering. He finds needs, problems. Lots of crowds, lots of people followed him. Why? Because there, there was something about him that said, there, you know, if I'm going to find any kind of answers, it's going to be with this guy, Jesus. There wasn't anything that he couldn't handle, but he got down to the individual. It wasn't just the crowd. He said to each one of us, he said to that crowd there, to the individuals there, don't follow me. Don't follow the crowd, but follow me, he says. And we saw in John chapter 7 that many in the crowd would put their faith in him. That's what you and I need to do. He called the crowd, Mark chapter 8, he says, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So in that crowd, there was this man with leprosy, this outcast who was separated, excluded, kind of just shunned from everybody else. And this man, he came to Jesus because he was his only hope. He recognized who Jesus was. And we see there that Jesus reached out and, and physically touched this man. No one else would ever think about touching this man, much less the Jew. To touch a, a person that had leprosy, that was, uh, you know, wow. The, the only thing that was worse was touching a dead body. Would make you unclean. But Jesus, he was willing, he was able, and when he touched him, things changed dramatically, radically. Today, we see another individual comes to Jesus. This time, it's a Gentile. In other words, he's not Jewish. He's not of the Jewish, you know, uh, nation by birth. And again, for a Jew to have dealings and to touch and to go into their house for a Jew, this would be unclean. But again, we also see that Jesus shows his love and concern and his power. Interestingly, the next one we're going to look at speaks about Peter's uh, mother-in-law, a, a woman. Jesus touches and heals a woman. And again, uh, especially the Pharisees, they look down upon women. So we have Jesus touching a leper. We have him ministering to a Gentile. And then he ministers to a woman. Jesus, you know, was not held by any barriers that were man-made. Look at verse 5. Let's just pick it up where we left off. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a satyrian came to him and asked for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. This centurion comes to Jesus. Jesus is now in a place called Capernaum, which is one of the towns on the Sea of Galilee. And it appears that he made his kind of base of operations there, possibly in Peter's house. 
But this centurion came to him, he found him, and he, he came, it says, asking for help. A centurion, again, he, he is a soldier in the Roman uh, military. He has charge of 100 uh, soldiers. We, we know about the Roman legion. The Roman legion was 6,000, and it had 60 centuries. And that's where you get the term centurion, a century, uh, was 100 soldiers. So he had heard about Jesus somewhere, somehow. I think there was something about this guy in his heart that he was searching and seeking after the truth of, of who God is, as we'll see as it comes out in his, in his expressions of faith. But my question is, for you and I, maybe you and I have heard about him. We've heard about Jesus. Maybe, maybe we even come to church week after week and we hear about Jesus week after week. Hopefully, right? If you don't hear about him, at least you see his name, right? If you can see. My eyesight is not very good. I, I have trouble seeing a lot of things. But, and that's, I'm not you know, downplaying anybody who can't see very well because I can't see very well. But maybe you've come and you've heard about him. Have you come to him like this centurion? It says he came to him and he asked for help. It's not enough just to hear about him, right? You need to, you need to take some steps and come to him and then ask for help. That's what the centurion did. Spurgeon, the great preacher from England in the last century, said this, he seeks a cure, but he does not prescribe to the Lord how or where he shall work it. In fact, he does not put his request into words, but pleads his case and lets the sorrow speak. He came to the Lord and, and it was all over him. His sorrow, his hurt, his pain, his suffering. He says to Jesus, Lord, and, and, and was he speaking about him as Lord in terms of the way you and I would speak? Well, probably not, but it was certainly a term of respect. It was certainly a term of submission and humility. And he says, you know, my servant, he's lying at home and he's paralyzed. He's in terrible suffering. What's the first thing we can notice about this centurion is that he is coming on behalf of who? Someone else. He's not coming for himself. We call that, the Bible calls that intercession when we come and bring a need to Jesus for somebody else. He doesn't come you know, for himself and say, listen, you know, I'm having a big problem and this guy's hurting and so things aren't getting done and it's, you know, affecting my life and all these things that we, you know, were, which probably were true, but he comes on behalf of somebody else. Intercession for you and I to pray. See, this is very biblical for us to be praying for other people. Paul told Timothy that he said this, I urge then, first of all, requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. And then he talks about kings and people in authority. And then he says this, he says this, this is good and pleases God our Savior. This is good when we come and, and we intercede and we pray for others. We have faith on behalf of others. This man, we don't know what kind of faith this servant had. He was at home. He, was, he wasn't even there. Makes me think, though, you know, when we say that we'll pray for others, how many times do we, you and I say that? We say it so easily, too. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And then what happens? We go home and we forget. Who was I supposed to pray for? 
And I told somebody I was going to pray for them. I think, we, I think if we tell someone we're going to pray for them, we should pray for them. And maybe, maybe even pray for them right now. Hey, can I pray for you right now? Because to be honest with you, I might forget it when I, when I leave here today. I think, you know, I'm honest with people. Let me pray for you right now because, you know, I'm, I may not remember. Now's a good time. You got a minute? Let's pray right now. And pray for, put, put your hand on their shoulder and say, you know, Jesus, I want to lift this person up. And then maybe we do that. Maybe that helps us to remember to pray for them later as well. I don't know. But it pleases God, our Savior. This this centurion, he prayed. He came on behalf of someone else. He interceded. The second thing we notice here about the centurion is that he was praying for this person who was a servant. This person mattered to him. In the Roman Empire, one commentator says that servants did not matter. They did not matter. They were non-persona. He says it was a matter of no importance to anyone if they suffered and whether they lived or died. But this centurion, he cared deeply about this person. He cared enough to to make the effort to get word to Jesus that this servant is in great, great need. Caring about people. That's why we talked last week about caring for the lost. Do we care for the lost at all that we might intercede for them, that that mother, that father, that brother, sister, co-worker, neighbor, that we might care for them, that we might intercede on their behalf, that they might hear the gospel and and respond to Jesus. The centurion, he cared. Look what Jesus' response is. He could have said, I'm kind of busy right now, can't you see? I've got a ministry I need to take care of. Lots of people that are coming. I, I really don't have much time on my hand. Let me, you know, maybe a week from Wednesday, I might be able to fit it in. He could, he could have said a lot of different things. He was very, he was very busy, wasn't he? He had no time to himself. But look what he says. He says, verse 7, Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. I will go and heal him. Jesus cared too. He cared for the hurting. He cared for the paralyzed. He cared for those that that couldn't do it for themselves, couldn't get up, couldn't go. And I think, you know, the heart of Jesus is so obvious. It's so apparent here. We've seen it now with the leper. We've seen it here with the, the servant and the centurion. That he cares. That he cares. Look at verse 8, though. The centurion replied, he says, great, get into my chariot. No, what what does he say? Look at this. He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. He has this incredible humility. You know, he, he, he felt that he was unworthy to have Jesus even come. Now, was that just because he was a Gentile and he knew about that? Uh, possibly. It says in another place that, that he actually, you know, he loved the, the Jewish faith and he built, you know, the synagogue for them. He was helpful to them. So he probably knew more than, than you know, just your average person. But I think there was a serious, there was a true humility there, you know, in, in relation to Jesus. You know, I'm not worthy. How many of us are worthy? How many of, of, of us are, are truly worthy to demand anything from Jesus, to expect anything from him? How many of us deserve anything from him? The truth is none of us do. 
I don't, not, not a single one of us deserves anything. You read in, in, in Luke where, you know, you've got the guy that comes in and says, you know, Lord, I, I think I'm not like that guy over there, that tax collector kind of guy. And I do all these things and he's kind of standing all puffed up. And then, and then the other guy comes in and he's afraid, he, he's afraid he can't even lift his face up. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one, Jesus said, received ministry from from God. It was the one who said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't deserve to even lift my face up. Humble yourselves in the mighty hand, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift us up. We don't deserve anything. We can't come in and demand and say, well, I'm, I'm going to say these words. I want to talk about that in a minute. But, but he says to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He understood something about Jesus and his word that many didn't. He knew that if Jesus said the word, that Jesus had authority, that Jesus had the power, that that's all he would need to do was say the word. And, and so I, I ask the question of myself and of us here today, do you and I know the power of Jesus' word? His written word? Do we know his authority, that, that, that his, his authority is, is complete? We're not talking here, and, I, and some of you are, are familiar with the term word faith. How many of you are familiar with the term word faith? A few of you are, are familiar with that. Basically, it's, you know, um, uh, you know, that we speak the word. We take the word of God and we'll speak it. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm leaving a lot out. But, you know, that, that God is then bound by whatever word I would speak. If I quote a scripture, then it has to be. And, and then, you know, it's kind of like me, me uh, in my opinion, me taking, you know, God's hand behind his back and twisting and trying to get him to do what I want to do. Well, that's not what's, what this man is saying here at all. He's saying that if Jesus says the word, Lord, if you say the word, it's faith in his word, in Jesus as the word, that he has the authority to do it. And if you understand the fact that that, that means that he has the authority we, it's ridiculous for us to even imagine that we're going to try to force him to do anything. He's got the authority. He is an authority over us. Turn with me. I want you to look at a few passages about, about his authority. First of all, let's, let's look at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel, that's uh, the last of the books of what we call the major prophets. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. It says this, In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence and he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus. He was given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. Jesus Christ. Turn to the last chapter of the book of Matthew where we are. Matthew chapter 28, in what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus sends us out. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 
says this, Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. How much authority has been given to Jesus? All authority has been given to him. In the book of Colossians, it says this, In Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He says, And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. This is who we're talking about here. This is the guy, as we turn back to Matthew chapter 8, this is the guy that Jesus is talking to. Excuse me, this is the guy that the centurion is talking to. Jesus, who has, who is the head, excuse me, <coughs> over every power and every authority. That's why we call him Lord. There's something of this that this centurion began to grasp. There's something of this that he understood, and we'll see as we move on here. Part of it came in his, in his kind of functioning in, in life. Look at verse 9. He says this, For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, this guy understood authority. There are different kinds of authority. Are there not on this earth? There are different kinds of authority even in the spiritual realm. On this earth, there's military. He was in a military. I, I kind of wish at different uh, times that I had been a part of the military so I could have learned some of these things and, and experienced them firsthand. But there's this thing of you know the, uh, structures of authority, the way things work. He says he, he understood that. There's authority, there's uh, different kinds of authority here in, in uh, our government, in, in our jobs, in the police department. I've been involved with the police department. I see the different ranks they have and, and, and you know that I report to certain people there. And I can't just go and do whatever I want to do. I need to report to, you know, the lieutenant. And he reports to the captain and the captain to the chief. And, and there's this structure of authority, you see. This guy, this centurion, he said, you know what, I understand. But, but, but he also knew that Jesus had an authority. And so he's saying, I understand authority, that, that, you know, you have the authority, you have the right, you have the power to do this. Some of us, as I was looking at this, though, some of us, you know, there's this thing about resisting authority. You can, I saw that you can buy a T-shirt. <clears throat> I was going to order one, but I didn't have time. That said, resist authority. And we can buy the bumper stickers and put it on our car. Well, why, why do we want to resist authority? Well, if you... If you go to Answers.com, which I truly believe is the final, final word on any question you might have, Answers.com, says, why do people resist authority? The answer is this. Some people just want to be in charge of their own lives without any restraints. They see authority as unneeded. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want anybody over me. They resist authority for that reason. It's not biblical, for one. 
This man, he, he was part of this, and he saw the authority of Jesus. Throughout the Bible, we see the, the authority spelled out. Paul says in Romans 13, you can read it for yourself, that, that everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. He says, no authority except that which God has established. There is none. So there's a thing about authority, then maybe, maybe you and I, and I know that this is something I've struggled with through the years, and, and I think part of it has to do in, you know, the family structure and whether there's a father in the home, and sometimes if there isn't, like in my case, you kind of, you know, you don't really know what that means. But, you know, you learn the hard way. I've learned the hard way. But also in the spiritual realm, there's this sort of authority too. And, and, and Paul talks about in, in Ephesians that, you know, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's authorities in the spiritual realm that we cannot even see, and we are fighting and struggling against those even now, even here, even today, even in our own lives. But... John tells us that you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Why? Because Jesus is the head over every power and every authority, every dark spiritual authority. That doesn't mean that you and I can just go and fight them in our own strength because we cannot, but in the name of Jesus. And in the strength of Jesus, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. The centurion, he, he understood. He understood some of these things. And, and, and my question is, do you and I understand the authority of Jesus, the, the, the incredible sovereign nature of who he is? Do we understand that? Or is it just Jesus, my buddy? Jesus, my best friend? Jesus, you know, my co-pilot? You know, all these ridiculous things we come up. No, we're talking Jesus, Lord of all creation. Jesus, ruler over all things. That we need to get on our knees and bow before him. Humble ourselves. This man. Look what Jesus' response to him is in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. And he said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Why? Because he understood who Jesus was and the, the authority that he had. The only time Jesus, it says in the, in the New Testament, that he was amazed that, like this, using this same word, was in his hometown, which says where he was amazed at their lack of faith. And now here he's astonished at this man's faith. And I, and I asked myself, is he amazed by our faith? My faith? Ooh, I don't know. Do we have that kind of faith? He said to these people here that, you know, there wasn't anybody in Israel with this kind of faith. And I, I, I imagine that kind of hurt. That kind of hurt. It was someone outside of, the Israel, outside of Israel. So many of the Jews, they didn't really trust in, in him. They didn't really believe in who he was. They didn't acknowledge who he was. The religious people didn't really get it. They didn't really have it. 
And again, what I spoke about in the beginning here about trying to mix all these different things, if you have one person who is the ultimate authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, how can you then put him alongside somebody like Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else? How can you, do, how can you mix those up? You can't. This outsider, it says he, he put his faith where it counted in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will, will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see Jesus speaking about heaven, about a banquet, about a feast, but we also see him speaking about hell. He wasn't afraid to talk about either of those. But notice there about heaven, it says people will come from all nations and they will join together at the feast. David Guzik uh, says, says this about heaven. He says, these few words of Jesus tell us a little something of what heaven is like. Number one, he says this, it's a place of rest. We sit down in heaven. We sit down at the feast. It's a place of rest. You're sitting down. I could ask you to stand up for 45 minutes, but you'd get tired. But it's a place of rest. Second, he says it's a place of good company to sit with. He says we enjoy the friendship of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in heaven. It's a place of many people. He says many will come. He says it's a place with people from all over the earth, all nations. He says it's a certain place, a certain place that is an actual place. When you think about sitting at this banquet with these people, and he mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, some of the things that we can deduce about a place like heaven, like what he's said here, is that you will be able to recognize people, right? How else would you know it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Spurgeon, again, he says this, but you shall hear those loved voices again. You shall hear those sweet voices once more. You shall yet know that those whom you loved, have been loved by God. Would not that be a dreary heaven for us to inhabit where we should be alike unknowing and unknown? He says, I would not care to go to such a heaven as that. I believe that heaven is a fellowship of the saints and that we shall know one another there. Heaven. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? In, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about this feast at the kingdom of heaven, and we don't have time to read it today, but he talks about this banquet. He talks about inviting all these people, and they began to make excuses. Well, I can't really go. I can't really, you know, I've got, you know, these things I need to do. I've got this, you know, these oxen I need to take care of. I've got this, you know, marriage. I just got married. I can't come. And in the end, the master says to his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. He says, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Those that refused to enter in. You see, Paul the apostle said that he was called to go, what? To the Jew first and then the Gentile. They were given the opportunity. There's still a time for the Jews, of course. We know that. But they had an opportunity, and that's why Jesus is saying here, he said, 
you know, many will come from the east and the west, from all these different places. He says, but, verse 12, the subjects of the kingdom, the Jewish people, he says, they're going to be thrown out. Those that were invited, they refused to come in. They refused to enter. Uh, John says this in, in John chapter 1. He says, he came, that is, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. He says, yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You and I have a choice. He goes on to talk about this place called hell. He's not afraid to talk about it. I really like Spurgeon. I got three quotes by Spurgeon today. Is that all right? Uh, sometimes I can't even understand what he's saying. It's like, you know, back in from the 1800s. But, but, uh, but I found a few good ones this time. He says, we see that Jesus, unafraid to speak of hell, and in fact did so more than any other in the Bible, says there are some ministers who never mention anything about hell. He said, I heard of a minister who once said to his congregation, if you do not love Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which it is not polite to mention. And Spurgeon says he ought not to have been allowed to preach again, I am sure, if he could not use plain words. The, you know, if we're going to speak about heaven, we need to speak about hell too. There's some that say that Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven, and I, and, and I don't know if that's really uh, true. You have to kind of go back and, and add all these things up and see. But the fact is, he did speak quite a, quite a lot about hell, that it is a certain place, and there's, there, you know, it's a place of sorrow, it's a place of grief and agony. Some of the descriptions in Scripture talk about it being a, a never-ending fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, teeth we see here, a place of outer darkness, a place of eternal punishment, the second death, the lake of fire, eternal destructions, uh, destruction shut out from the very presence of God. This is what the Bible says about it. Is it something we need to be concerned about? Yes, we do. What makes the difference? What makes the difference here in this passage? The difference is faith. Jesus says, I have not found faith like this in, in, in Israel. He was astonished. What made the difference was faith. This man had faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, verse 13, we'll close with this, Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. He says, Go. Keep trusting. If Jesus said the word, the servant would be healed. And it certainly, Jesus kept his word. He keeps his word. This word that we have that, that I've been talking about is true and God is faithful to his word. He will keep his word. He will keep his word when it comes to things like heaven and hell. He will keep his word when it comes to things like eternal life or eternal separation. The most important decision a person could ever make in life. I hope that you have made a decision to receive Jesus Christ and you have not, you just heard about him but not done anything about it. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. So many topics just found in this little passage that we could look at every one of them for weeks. He talks about healing, he talks about compassion 
talks about authority, he talks about faith, he talks about intercession, he talks about heaven and hell. See all those, all those things there? But they all point to Jesus. They all point to Jesus. May you and I have that trust in the faith of this outsider, this centurion that, that came to Jesus and said, you, Lord, you've got authority. You, you say the word. If you say the word, it's good. Whatever you say goes. And, and not be one to resist his lordship in our lives. Whatever you say goes. Whatever you want, whatever you want from me, you're the boss. You're the boss, Jesus. You're the one in charge. You're not the co-pilot. You're the pilot. You're the one in charge. You don't just give me advice. No, no, no. Just say the word. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that he cares, that he cared about this man and his servant. From the least to the greatest, you care. You care about each one of us. But Lord, may we understand, as this centurion did, who you are, Jesus, that all authority is yours. And we must simply bow at your feet and acknowledge you as Lord, Savior, Redeemer, the lover of our souls, the one who's faithful. Lord, we come and we we acknowledge the cross that that you gave your life. You loved us so much. You had all authority, and yet you, you also lay down your life for us that we might have life. You opened the way. You provided the path. And so we thank you for that this morning. And I pray that, that we would go here today, this, this morning, Lord, acknowledging you as Lord, the supreme, the ultimate authority. Not just in our lives, but in this planet, in heaven and earth. Overall, there are none. There's none like you. None like you. Father, I pray for any this morning that, that maybe have heard about Jesus so that needs to surrender, surrender to you, surrender to the awesome love that you have and the power of who you are and, and the authority of who you are and also the great love that you showed at the cross. I pray for each one that we have made that step and decision. If that's you this morning, simply open your heart right now and say, Jesus, I come. I come to you and, and everything that you are. And I surrender and I humble myself before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.